Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any of the funds, services, or products or to adopt any investment strategy. Hi, it's Emily. Welcome back to part two of our quilt series to wrap up season one of the TVP podcast. We'll kick off with Andy Evans and Kevin Murphy discussing Michael Mulbosson, who we initially interviewed at the end of 2019, but released in January of 2020. So, Kev, we've been asking team members about their favourite podcast episodes, but I think in this case, we're not going to ask you, because if it's not the interview with Michael Mulbosson that you and I did, I'll be very surprised. You know, he, he's been pretty influential on our process. So how, how do you find interviewing someone who's kind of so influential um, for us? Um, I, I found it a little bit difficult, to be honest, because, as you say, I am a, I don't want to come across as too much of a fanboy, but um, he is somewhat of a, a, an intellectual hero of mine. And um, I've read all his books and all his articles. And he's been a significant influence on the way that we've built our process and not just his thinking, but the thinking he's introduced us to through other psychologists, like Derek Klein or whoever it may be. And, and the impact that that has had on us as a team is, is profound. But the, the podcast was difficult because you're treading a, a thin line between wanting to introduce other people to his ideas, but also wanting to dig into some of those ideas that are more practical for us. So it's a balancing act between making them accessible for everybody and but also selfish, somewhat selfishly using that time to dig for our own interests and to see what else we could learn in, in a somewhat deeper way, which of course my guess is the vast majority of people aren't interested in. Um, but, and, and, but balancing that line was, uh, was the challenge. But you're right, it was uh, thoroughly enjoyable and, uh, and a, a great opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I, I love I love doing it, but you're right about the type rope. But when you think about that, and given that you've well, we've read so much around um, what he's written in the past. Um, what was the one thing which kind of jumped out for you, which was either new or the way that he framed it, kind of really hit home with you? Um. So, the bit that was most impactful for me, and uh, yesterday I re-listened to it again. Well, I guess it's twofold. The first is, what do I think most people should take from it? Uh, which isn't quite the question you asked, but the first answer, where the antidotes to overconfidence, I think, is probably the most important part of the podcast for the majority of people. They're, they're talking about pre-mortems, they're talking about decision journals. Um, that That is, um, I think, the key to all of this. Yeah, no, I, I love the, the kind of way he framed the three O's that the behavioural biases of overconfidence, overplacement, and overprecision, and as you said, some of the tools that he, he talked about around that. 
the area where I think I fortified the curriculum the most is on decision making. And that was sort of a recognition fairly early on in the course that what made for a great investor had less to do with some of their technical capabilities, you know, how do they build spreadsheets or, or even think about things like strategy, and much more about their decision making in particular. Um, and I'll just say the overarching problem <clears throat> in decision making in general is uh, that people just don't consider uh, enough outcomes when they think about the future. And, you know, we, we commonly call this overconfidence, but uh, just to, to do a slight diversion, overconfidence typically has multiple components. Um, the first component would be something called overestimation, which means we think that we're better than we actually are doing something. So you ask somebody to do a particular task, they're, they're, they're absolutely overestimating their own capabilities. The second is called overplacement, which is relative to other people. And you've all heard these things, you know, 85% of people think they're above average drivers and so forth. But the third and, and last component of overconfidence, the one that's important for us, and that's called overprecision which is this concept that we're too sure that we know the truth. We're too sure that we know how the future is going to unfold. And as a consequence, we don't consider sufficient number of outcomes. So the question is, uh, what is the antidote to that? Sort of that that's, that's what you're asking. It's, it's really great. What thing do you think you would do different after listening to this? You, you kind of touched on um, you know, the, the way that we look back at our decision journal, as it were. Um, maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on that. So the uh, learning in the stock market is an extremely difficult thing to do. It's extremely difficult because you've got a small amount. When you buy a stock, you've only got a small, certainly for our team, where we have a concentrated portfolio, a small number of stocks, so somewhere between 30 and 50 a year. Now, they might go up and they might go down, and they might go up because of uh, luck, or they might go up because of skill, and they might go down because of bad luck, and they might go down because of skill. And as a consequence, you have, uh, as Michael framed it, a two-by-two two matrix where good things happen for good reasons, but also bad things can happen despite a good process. And it means that you end up with a small handful of stocks in each box and working out <laughs> effectively which box to allocate to each stock is difficult um, because we simply don't have huge reams of data. So we uh, try to learn from history, uh, and we have um, our archive of all our uh, research that we've ever done. But it isn't straightfor as straightforward as people would imagine to learn from that history. And building rigor around that is extremely important because the default answer that humans will give themselves automatically is, I was just unlucky. It wasn't a mistake. I was unlucky. And if we're going to be intellectually honest with ourselves, which, of course, is the if we want to learn, we have to be. We need to be more thorough than that. And we need to have some mechanism or some way of allocating uh, or admitting effectively mistakes and ensuring that we're held to account. Because if you don't, you can never learn. If you're always just unlucky, then you'll just carry on doing the same thing over and over. And accepting and admitting that you have made a mistake is crucial. And being forced to accept that if, is, uh, is key. The third big one, and this is what 
requires some discipline but extraordinarily valuable. It's just simply tracking your decision. So when you have, you, you make an investment, write down what you expect to happen, why you expect it to happen. And really the key thing here is to write down um, aspects of the uh, investment in probabilistic terms. So do not use vague phrases like, it's a good chance that margins will be up next year, or we think it's likely they'll be acquired by their competitors. You actually use everything, all your all your views should be uh, written down using probabilities. And one of the powers of tracking decisions in this way is it allows you to get feedback, honest feedback on, on your decision-making process. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, I look back through my notes and, and that matrix that you talked about was something I had and, and it jumped out in my notes for me as well, that it's something which, you know, we could, we could be a bit more uh, diligent um, when it comes mm-hmm. to thinking about it with that framework. But one final thing I want to ask you about, um, Kev, is uh, Michael talked about the, the benefits of ascribing probabilities to decisions. Mm-hmm. And I know that's something we've kind of dabbled with in the past. Mm-hmm. But um, did, did you have any thoughts after that conversation with Michael about how we should approach that or, or thinking about that? Um, the reality is I haven't because it's, it's extremely difficult. Um, so people intuitively push back when you ask someone to do that. So if you say to someone, uh, tell me what you think is going to happen tomorrow, they will tell you what they think is going to happen tomorrow. If you ask someone to ascribe a probability to that, they'll give you a number, but it's actually very, very difficult to have precision around that. People feel uncomfortable about putting numbers to feelings. Um, so uh, I think it's very difficult, but the, the framework that one would use to do this of looking back at the base rates, trying to find out what is the effectively what has happened from these kind of situations before is crucial. The three things I would mention, um, the first is integrating base rates. So what exactly does that mean? When we uh, take on tasks or try to solve problems, the classic way to do that is to gather lots of information, combine it with your own experience and your own point of view, and then project into the future. Um, Psychologists, I think led primarily by Danny Kahneman, um, have suggested that we should integrate this idea of base rates, which is looking at the past to try to anticipate the future. So a base rate would ask, "What? Uh, let me think about my problem as an instance of a larger reference class, and then ask a very simple question, what happened when other people were in this situation before? So in the world of business, I can do this you know, fairly straightforward. Let's say we could look at um, a company of a certain level of, of sales or turnover. Um, and then you'd say, uh, let's say, let's just pick a number, three billion, and just say, of all the companies of similar size, what were what was the distribution of one, three, five, and ten year growth rates in sales or turnover? And then that allows you to understand, to some degree, if your estimation uh, in your own model is something that seems to make sense or not. Now, there's some technical ways to combine. Uh, your own views with these base rates, and I won't go into that in great detail, but just the integration of base rates has been demonstrated to really improve people's uh, quality of decisions. Next, we spoke to Andrew Lydon and Andrew Williams, whose favorite episode was with Maria Konnikova in February 2021. Um, I think for me, the the most interesting um, of the many interesting podcasts you've uh, we've put out on the, the Schroders podcast would be the 
the one you did with Maria Konnikova, uh, the psychologist uh, turned uh, poker player. Um, I think the the idea that she said across of, you know, living probabilistically, not being natural to, to human beings and having to, to live probabil- probabilistically in order to really understand it. So she had uh, lived that that life through her um, exploit as a poker player. Um, that sort of resonated with me as a as a value investor in that you have to day-to-day um, try and think in that way in order to properly, properly understand it and be able to uh, apply it. Um, that made me also think about some of the differences between uh, investment or value investment specifically and a game like poker. Um, which is that in, in poker, you obviously get the, the feedback of your decisions very, very quickly. And it's possible to rack up a large number of individual tests, you know, from lots of different hands um, quite quickly over a period of, uh, of weeks and months. Um, whereas in investment and value investment in particular, where there are long holding periods, you don't necessarily get that feedback and it's, it's less clear cut feedback perhaps. And so, um, I thought that was an interesting distinction between the way she was talking about things and the way she was um, living that probabilistic life uh, and the way that a value investor uh, does. I did get a PhD in psychology where I studied decision-making. And one of the things I studied was how bad we are at thinking probabilistically. And every single time I saw that, I was like, yep, that's me. (laughs) It's it's one of these things where when you see those studies, um, when you take them yourself, you can train yourself within the context of an experiment to know what the answer is. But then it's such a big leap from going to knowing how to answer an experimental question in the laboratory correctly to actually being able to act on probabilistic knowledge in your day-to-day life and your day-to-day decisions. And I was certainly guilty of all of the biases that I've learned about and that I've done research on. And I think that this is something that's common even to people who are statisticians, even to people who study probabilities for a living, because studying them is not the same thing as living them. And one of the things you learn from psychology is what I write about um, called the description experience gap. So we learn, there are two ways of learning. You can learn from description. I tell you, you know, there's a 1% chance of this, this is 10%, this is 70, whatever it is. And we learn from experience. It happens to me, it happens to someone else I know, and I internalize that. And the way our brain learns overwhelmingly is through experience. And that's what sticks. And unfortunately, probabilities are not normally or evenly distributed in life. Probabilities don't look experientially the way they look on paper, right? We don't live in a perfect bell curve distribution. And we don't, you know, if something is supposed to happen 25% of the time, it's not like it's going to happen the fourth time if it didn't happen the first three times. That's not how probabilities work. And yet, we learn from what happens to us. And so, we'll overestimate probabilities when we know someone to whom it's happened or when it's happened to us. And on the contrary, we'll understate probabilities when we don't have any personal experience of them. And it's always skewed. The other, like, Part of the podcast I felt that was 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 uh, was was amazing was that, that how poker helps her to do this. So 
she said, you know, you can learn through experience. And the awesome thing about poker is you play thousands and thousands of hands. So you actually learn over time what a 1% probability feels like, what a 5% probability feels like. Um, and then you can kind of take that knowledge away and start applying it um, you know, to, 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 to your everyday life. Um, and you know, there aren't many fields where you can do that, where you can actually really learn what those different probabilities actually feel like. In poker, it was this phenomenal tool that I didn't even realize was going to be so good because you end up learning through experience. You're playing, you're actually sampling, but you're sampling correctly because you're playing thousands and thousands of hands. And so if you actually study the game seriously and know what the probabilities are, you get a feel for, oh, this is what 1% feels like. This is what 5% feels like. There's a huge difference between 2% and 3%. 1% is huge. If I can have a 1% edge, I'm printing money. I want to take that 1% edge mm. every single time. And so you actually learn what it feels like. And that's what taught me to think probabilistically and to be able to actually take that knowledge away from the poker table and apply it to the decisions that I make in my everyday life. I also like the emphasis that she put on the importance of having a, a solid process around you in order to, to strip out the emotional aspect of the human brain and try and encourage that idea of living probabilistically um i think she you know phrases 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 it as being put on the right side of variance so uh, having that process to help you do that which is obviously uh something as a value investor on our team uh, we put a lot of emphasis on um the importance of that process um in giving you the right results um and her comment was basically that that's all you can do there's a a lot of noise uh in the world probability doesn't care about you doesn't care what's happened in the past uh, it just cares about the future uh, and it's much easier emotionally if you uh, can, can come to terms with the idea that all you can do is put the process in place and providing it's a sound process then um, over the long run uh, that should lead to good things variance is my way i mean it's it's basically the distribution of probabilities and the noise and kind of all of the things that might happen. And so if you are someone who doesn't like, it's what we were just talking about, right? If you're someone who doesn't like nuance and doesn't like to live in the world of the uncertain, then variance can be very, very scary because you want to reduce your variance. You don't want to kind of experience the swings of outcomes. Instead, you want things to be predictable and nice. And the truth about just life in general, not even, let's not talk about poker, is that it's uncertain. And there's a lot of variance in life and you don't know, no matter how much you try to mitigate your own risk, you simply do not know what's going to happen in the next minute, let alone tomorrow or the next year. And so even if you think that you're, you've done everything you can, things happen and life happens and it doesn't care about you or what you've done sure you know if you don't skydive you're probably going to have a lower risk of death than someone who skydives every single day 
Sure, you can do things like that, but you might have never smoked a day in your life and get lung cancer, right? Not doing something doesn't mean you're totally eliminating variants. You can reduce it by certain behaviors, but you can't eliminate it. One of the things that poker taught me was that you don't, you never know which way variance is going to go. The best thing you can do is just keep making good decisions and put yourself on the right side of variance in terms of your decision making process, but the outcome is going to be what it's going to be. You can't control it. That's variance. That's chance. And so if I make a decision where I'm a 75% favorite to win, then that's great. I made the right choice. That's wonderful. I should make that choice again, but that means I'm going to lose 25% of the time. And that's true in life, just like it is in poker. And it happens all the time. And you never know when it's going to happen. People tend to think that, oh, you know, if I'm if I've gotten unlucky this number of times, then I'm due. I'm due to be lucky. Or if I've been lucky, then good. I'm going to keep being lucky. And as you say, you know, that doesn't matter. Probabilities don't care about you. They don't have a memory. They have amnesia. It's just totally, variance is just out there and it has no idea who you are. And even calling it, you know, even personifying it the way I'm doing um, makes it more alive than it actually is. Ben Arnold's favorite episode is with Annie Duke, a true friend of the podcast. She's actually appeared in two episodes. The first time was in July 2020 and the second time in November of 2020. Hey, JT. So uh, it was the Annie Duke, the second Annie Duke podcast. I think it's been my favorite so far. I like I like the first one, but I thought the second one was even more interesting. And what was it that caught your attention? Um, well, I mean, I like Annie Duke anyway. Um, I loved her book. Um, I think she's super interesting and can really articulate her ideas really well. But I really think her, you know, at the beginning when you asked uh, how how she would sort of make probabilistic thinking a little a little more real for people and a bit less abstract, and she talked about the sort of the mental model of you know asking people instead of you know what's the pr- probability of x she'd say well actually you know if you rephrase the question or reframe the question to say what's the uh you know if something was to happen a hundred times um so you know how many times out of a hundred would 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 x happen it just makes it a lot easier to understand and people generally sort of respond to that a lot better so i thought that was really interesting that's a really good question and i want to kind of take two different paths to answer it if that's okay um i think one you need to kind of ground what really does probability mean in a way where you're sort of removing it from the abstraction of math and grounding it in what the math is actually supposed to describe. So, you know, the difference between saying to somebody two plus two is four and showing them two apples and two apples and putting them together and saying, this is what that is describing. So I think that that's one piece and I'll I'll talk about that a, a little bit. And then the other piece I think is that I think that you really have to show people why. Why is it actually really important to think about uh, things in terms of probability and then to actually express that in a really precise way? And if you don't show them the case for why this is going to make their their decision-making better, why it's going to improve the quality of their team conversations, I don't know that they're going to sort of get through that that phobia about 
probability. And then actually I would add a third thing, which is I think you need to show people the way that they can get better at it without mm -hmm. pain. So let me kind of walk, walk through those a little bit. So, so the first thing is I think that you need to let people know, like, what is a probability expressing? And, and there's interesting research that shows that if you just tell people, think about how many times you'd expect it to happen out of 100, that they're actually much better with that mm -hmm. than they are with saying, uh, I think it's going to happen 60% of the time. <laughs> so if you just say, how many times out of 100 would you expect to see this result? Like, if I flipped a coin, how many times out of 100 do you think it would land heads? Yeah. Um, they're much better at saying, oh, I think it would happen 50 times out of 100 than saying 50%. So I think if you can start to use some plain language to get people to really imagine what is the thing that the probability is supposed to be describing for me. And it has to do with frequency, really, right? Like if I were to imagine that I sort of did this thing over and over again, right? I went on this sales call. How many times out of 100 that I made this same sales call do I think that I would actually close the sale? Understanding that there's all sorts of things that I can't control, like maybe the person is in a bad mood or the wrong person came in before me or, you know, whatever it is, like sort of imagine all of that stuff and then think about how many times out of 100 that would happen and then just convert that. And then I think it becomes less of an abstraction. Mm. That's kind of number one. And then also the, uh, you know, the, the chat that you two had around um, Obama and, 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 you know, you, you, you were talking about the, you know, when they were trying to come up with the, the probabilities around how likely um, Osama bin Laden was in the, um, was in the, 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 the house and Obama asked the room around, um, you know, what probabilities he thought everyone had on it. And, and you guys talked about that decision-making, making process. And actually the, she said a sentence, something around, you know, it is not the role of a group to come into uh, agreement is the role of the group to come to the most informed decision possible. And I thought that was, I thought that was super interesting because I think that just changes, um, uh, I don't know, it just reframes the conversation around group um, group decision-making. And yeah, uh, that, that, that was the one thing I think that really, as soon as you said that, I thought, yeah, that is, that is excellent. That's, um, that kind of just ch changes the perspective a little bit. Here's the thing. Most decisions suffer from consensus. <laughs> because generally, it's not actually consensus. It's just making you feel better. Because the people don't actually, they haven't actually agreed with each other. It's just some people are like, okay, I give in, right? So everybody's going to walk away. If, you, if, if the room comes out and they say, we've all agreed on this, it's just not true. They haven't agreed on it. So there's going to be somebody who in the end is going to be responsible for the decision. And mm -hmm. the goal is for that person to be as informed as possible, but to allow the dispersion to remain. Because otherwise what happens is that you're suppressing how much people are willing to tell you why they disagree. You're suppressing their, their ability to continue to disagree, which is totally fine. And in fact, you want that because the whole point is to have a collision like in the public square of different points of view. So, um, and then when it doesn't work out, that person's going to say, I told you so, because they're going to have felt forced to bend and toward what the consensus of the group is. So in the end, maybe in this case, it's Obama's decision. So you go around and you sort of divide people up in low, medium, and high, let them express all of this, allow them to write down a posterior probability. Obama has now heard all of the reasoning. 
every last bit of it that's gone into what, why people's rationales are what they are. And then he's now going to make the best informed decision possible because he's heard all of the perspectives. Hmm. So first of all, the goal of conversation is not to convince, it's to convey. And I think that we really need to get that into our process. It's incredibly hmm. important. And then the second thing is that the goal of conversation is not to reach agreement. Hmm. It is to become informed. Finally, Nick Kierage enjoyed interviewing Expedition Ice Maiden, featuring Major Nick Weatherill and Lance Sergeant Sophie Montagna from March 2020. Yeah, it was, re- <laughs> it was really enjoyable. Um, thank you very much for allowing me to co-host that with you. I, it, it was it was kind of fascinating to hear lots of different things. You know the you know the nature of the decisions we're making day to day. Obviously, there's a risk and a reward, but it's slightly different when you're kind of thousands of miles in a frozen tundra with you know, carrying your own food and all the rest of it. But I thought there were some some amazing aspects to to how they went about what they did. Um, you know, in particular, the first thing that kind of struck me thinking back about that was how they selected their team, um, and that was the kind of ethos. You know, it was it was focused on a team. It wasn't about picking individuals with skill, individual skills that contributed to the overall. It was about who is going to focus on, you know, who is the most committed to the expedition, to the purpose, to to the other people. You know who was the most determined, and people who are willing to put the team first. And I thought, you know, we talk a lot about, um, yeah, we, we work in investment. It's it's this is an individual sport in some respects. You know, people are investing on a fund or a product, and it's very easy to become wrapped up in the one individual thing you're doing yourself. Maybe the person you're investing with, if there's two of you, but just your little world. And I think this concept of them being very clear and putting the purpose of what they were doing first and picking people who were committed to the overall, to being selfless, to kind of, you know, to the, to the team first and foremost was very powerful and kind of resonated very strongly with me. For us and for this expedition, it was about, it was, you know, almost 80, 90% about the team and how it worked together. And you can, you can bring everybody's skills and completely take away, you know, almost blank that human element that you say, so that it's it's completely, um, n- you know, null. But ultimately, for us, that was what made it. We needed that team co- cohesion, and having similar backgrounds, or having, um, or even different backgrounds, but the fact that we all had similar um, ethos or. Um, priorities and meant that we could all connect and that meant that we were probably going to be a more successful team when it came to to sort of literally technical skills like I say we we had two years we all needed to be able to learn how to rescue someone from a crevasse we couldn't just rely on one person and that was their job Mm. Um, so that's why I think it it was 90% down to the teamwork rather than actually the skills that everybody brought Um, and yeah we we had you know, we had two years to train together and actually really begin to gel. Um, and we've actually, we ended up with people from all different backgrounds. Um, so it, it actually kind of worked out that we probably did end up taking out some of that human element, but it, it we all formed it together over that two years. One of the tools that people keep bringing up, bringing up in, in this whole series is uh, to, to improve decision-making is the concept of, of a pre-mortem. And I actually, yeah. I was re-listening to the episode. I have actually listened to the episode many times. 
And and I was I was re-listening to it this morning, and it struck me that she never mentioned the word premortem, but actually she was exactly doing that when she was preparing herself for the trip, which was uh, yeah. when she, when she mentioned that she sat down, exactly catastrophizing, and she sat down with her husband, and and he d- then started like putting her in all of these diff- difficult situations. What would you do if this yeah. happens? What do you do if that happens? And she said that that mental exercise helped her a lot to. Uh, through to, to make decisions throughout the journey yeah like I, I i wrote those exact notes down as well it's like pre-mortem it sounded it was just like a pre-mortem and i think you know there's one of the dangers of what we do is is that it's very easy to say i don't know that about the future and value investors are very we're very aware of what we can't do as well as what we can it's about rooting yourself in things like base rates, history, things you can know. And I think taking that to an extreme, you can say, well, there's just so much I don't know about the future. I'm not even going to try to think about it. And actually, that's a mistake, you know, because actually, as you highlighted, as Nick's highlighted, the, the catastrophizing, the pre-mortem is a very helpful way of thinking, well, what are the obvious ways I might lose money for my clients? Because if I can cover some of those off, then it yeah. turns into the classic investment we're all looking for, which is heads I win, tails I don't lose too much. And that yeah. tilting the odds in your favor is is absolutely crucial. It's about making 40 investments where you do that. So I thought that was fascinating too. It was probably only about a month before we left and I had I just sort of been speaking to him about um was I, you know, some of the things I was slightly anxious about. And they were all the kind of predictable things like being in the middle of nowhere, you know, thousands of miles from the nearest help and um, only five other people and bad weather and it was all the kind of predictable stuff and he just suddenly threw in some scenarios it's like well let's talk through some potential situations that um, you know what would you do if uh, somebody sudden somebody in the team said well actually this girl is struggling we need to get her rescued and or they're not buying into the team goals and I hadn't even considered that I just thought all of us were on the same team we're gonna of course we're gonna be gelling but actually um it was somebody from an outside perspective who threw in these situations that just made me actually consider it and actually it became quite relevant there were a few situations which did arise on the ice which because I had just talked through them um all of the sort of theoretical and hypothetical situations they suddenly became real and I was actually able to not make those um, snap decisions or uh, sort of, you know, a, a sudden panic about having to decide what to do um, because I hadn't even considered this as, an, as a potential situation. Mm-hmm.